0: This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey entrepreneurs, my name is Felix and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Jason Wong explained how he launched to $200,000 in sales using Tumblr. On this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that tripled revenue when focusing on just one product line. In this episode, you'll learn how to determine the right mix between manufacturing versus private labeling? How to determine if a manufacturer can scale with you as you grow? And the lessons learned from barely meeting a Kickstarter fundraising goal. Today, I'm joined by Fran Dunaway from Tomboyx.com. That's T-O-M-B-O-Y-X.com. Tomboyx sells underwear that's not for everybody, but is for anybody. I, I love that tagline. And it was started in 2013 and based out of Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Fran.
1: Hi. Thank you very much. I'm happy
0: to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. So t- tell us a little more about the your store and what are some of the, obviously you sell underwear, like I said, but what are some of the more popular products o- underneath your your brand that, that you sell?
1: Well, you know, we started with just two versions of boxer briefs. And initially we were making boxer briefs designed for curvier bodies, women, and uh, quickly found out that they actually work for everyone and hence our tagline. But we also We're the first company to come out with boxer briefs that weren't designed for men. So we got rid of kind of the extra fabric in the front and came up with two different links and came out with those. And uh, the four-and-a-half-inch boxer brief remains our bestseller, but we've also added a nine-inch boxer brief that is doing extremely well. And uh, we have a full line of briefs, uh, boxer briefs, everything from a brief to a nine-inch boxer brief. That we offer right now.
0: I got you. So you refined the I guess kind of products, kind of offering that you had in your store. Discovered that the box briefs that were not designed for men were the the more popular products that you were selling. Uh, how did you uncover that? How did you kind of stumble into this particular I guess um, uh, the design of products?
1: Well, that's that's a great question because we we didn't start in underwear. Um, we started this underwear company because I wanted a cool shirt, and that's uh, that's that's how we got our start. I wanted a cool button-up shirt for women, you know, like a Robert Graham or a Ben Sherman that's button up with fun features mm-hmm. that had a hidden button to keep it from gaping open in a meeting, and that's where we started. And this was just a little side business that was going to operate out of our garage, and we picked the name Tomboy X because we thought it was a cute name. And then we did a Kickstarter campaign, and we raised $76,000 in 30 days. But about a week into the campaign, we recognized that the name was really resonating. We had like an instant brand. And we had women and girls from all over the world reaching out to us because of this Kickstarter campaign, just saying, you know, where have you been all my life? And, and what a great brand, finally a brand for me. And we thought, oh, dear, what, what? <laughs> this is about more – this is bigger than a shirt, And so how do we find a product that can really speak to to all of these people because so many look different on the outside or what they wear on a daily basis than how they feel on the inside? And so that was kind of our our quandary. And then we kept hearing from customers. So we obviously got our shirts made from the Kickstarter campaign, but we put our logo on T-shirts that we didn't make, just some blanks and, and hats. And then we found this little um, a type of underwear, just a brief. It was, it's like a guy's whitey-tighty, and, um, but we didn't make it. And we put our logo on it, and that quickly became one of our best sellers. So we'd also been hearing from a lot of our customers, as well as a close friend who is a police officer. And they kept saying, you guys should make boxer briefs. And we kept saying, really? And finally looked into, did some research, and found that no one was doing it. So we felt like that was a great opportunity. And um, our friend, the police officer, Karma, brought her stack of men's boxer briefs in. And she said, look, they don't, any any people, women that, that work in uh, blue collar, wear loose fitting clothes, traditional women's underwear doesn't work. It rides up, it's, it's constantly a problem. And so that's why she had been buying men's boxer briefs for years, and so... She, I call her a connoisseur of men's boxer briefs because she knew everything. She told us this waistband works, this is why, this is what. Well. You know, you need to make a solid quality waistband that lasts as long as the underwear. And really went through and told us the, the, the secret ingredient or the, uh, the way that we should design these boxer briefs to be successful. And we took copious notes. Uh, we worked with our, at the time she was a contractor, she's now full-time, um, Julie Nomi, who designs our, our product, and she took great notes. We got samples made, tried them on all types of different bodies. And we also knew it was important to us, to. Um, so my wife and I are co-founders, and it was important to us uh, as far as our values that we, We're a company that included everyone. So we wanted to make sure we could do an extra small to a 4X. And that's typically not done either. It's very hard to find companies that have that range and that uh, at the same price point and that fit so well. And so we worked tremendously hard to make sure that all of those things happen using quality products, that making a product that will last, that isn't fast fashion, that ends up in a landfill in a few months. So that was our kind of our goal. And then we introduced two styles, two links. And at that time, we were naming them after people that uh, we cared about or that had been helping us. So, of course, the first pair were called the good karmas after karma, the police officer. We've since uh, gone through a rebrand and have a very different uh, – those are now called the six-inch Fly.
0: Very cool. So lots of great details in there that I want to unpack a bit. And I want to start with the the, the validation that you were going through. So you already launched on Kickstarter, which we'll go into in a bit, has assessed there. You found, I'm assuming, some kind of white label um, boxer briefs that you branded yourself and discovered after talking to uh, Karma in this case about... The, the need for, for for boxer briefs, again, not designed for men. And you found out that no one else out there was really making this. No one out there was really selling it. And a lot of times you'll hear entrepreneurs say that they are looking for markets that already have competition because it means that there's already demand, there's money to be made in that market, but you found out that there wasn't anybody in that space, and obviously you created the market yourself. Was that ever a concern for you that there wasn't already competition in this, um, serving this particular problem?
1: Well, first I want to clarify that we the white label underwear that we started with that wasn't, that we weren't making was actually a brief. It was like a, a guy's whitey tidy. It wasn't mm-hmm. a boxer brief. But we were hearing from customers that that was a, an, a need within the uh, industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, so we recognized that there was a need within the industry because a lot of our customers had been telling us. And what we knew, like when we when we started with the shirt, when when we started the company and we wanted to start with a button up shirt, we recognized that there was a tremendous underserved niche, if you will, within the fashion industry. And that's the the people that we started hearing from during the Kickstarter that had felt underrepresented for so long, actually ignored. And that's this whole segment of women who don't, that prefer not to dress traditionally feminine, but Mm -hmm. also aren't shopping, don't want to shop in the menswear department. So there's this, this midsection. But there's also then, because of the name, there's also this spirit, this kind of underneath it all. And so underwear became the ideal choice for us because it's that layer that you wear between who you are on the inside and how you present on the outside. So we kind of lo- love the the independent spirit of the tomboy. You know, what it means to be a tomboy is independent and uh, strong and Doing your own thing. And there are a lot of women that identify with that spirit, but may dress more feminine or more masculine. So there's, there's a whole cross section of of how people may present on the outside, but it's that inner inner part that we really wanted to, to represent that was important
0: to us. Very cool. Makes sense. So you uh, mentioned that you wanted to create this uh, underwear The you wanted to create a clothing that matched all body types. Um, and you, like you, you're saying that you don't see this too often where there's such a wide range of, of uh, I guess, offerings from, uh, I'm not sure what you said, but much, much smaller size to much, much larger sizes. What kind of challenges does that, do you, do you face when you want to cover that kind of breadth of all body types?
1: When I started this company, I didn't know a knit from a woven, so I have learned every step of the way about how this all works. And I think that that's part of what has been our success, because rather than saying, well, it's just not done that way, we said, well, why can't we do it this way? And so that takes us into a whole different journey and absolutely adhering to our values and saying, no, we're going to make this for everyone and we can make this work So you have to really get in there and try it on different body types and then make adjustments and be smart about the fabrics that you're using and whatnot. But a typical company will – there are ways of grading. So you start with a a typical model, for example, when when a clothing company is designing clothes, they'll start with a a fit model, and they might start with a size 2, and then they'll grade up from there. So by the time you get to a 12 – You know, a 12's body is very different than a size 2 body, and so it becomes a a much different fit, but we wanted to make sure that we went that spectrum and beyond, and so we didn't start with a size 2. Our fit model is a size large, and then we go up and down from there, but we make sure that we make adjustments. We have recently launched a luxury micro-modal version of our underwear, and we've been learning a tremendous amount of information about, um, how that particular fabric fits bodies differently than what our previous fabric had been. And so we're making adjustments and making notes on that. And we're also coming out with some new product in the spring that we're very excited about and running into the same challenge, but we just keep at it until we get it right for the vast majority of of different body types and people.
0: When you first started, were you manufacturing your own products or were you finding these white label products like the briefs that you found or was it a mix of of both uh, your own manufacturing and and the, the white label products?
1: We started by having a mix. We kind of wanted to, at that time we said create, curate, and cultivate the tomboy look for all women. And so when we... Had our stuff in production, we would get white label things and put our logo on it, but we also were selling things to finish out the look like accessories. So, our good friend down in LA, um, at the time we didn't know her, but she reached out to us and said, Hey, I'll drop ship stuff for you. It was Lucky Dog Leather. So, we were able to have a vast assortment of bracelets all of a sudden on our website. And, you know, there were a lot of ways that people were coming together. We got some denim, we we, um, we were buying wholesale shoes. and completing a look, um, and that was doing just fine. It was the decision to move into boxer briefs that was pivotable, pivotable for us because we actually tripled our revenue in six months with the introduction of the boxer briefs. So we saw a huge spike, and that was then when we had to decide, okay, are we an underwear company, or do we keep going down this cur- curation path, and decided that it was a much better move for us to focus in and get really good at what what was uh, obviously successful for us Mm -hmm. in fact we didn't have the money to pay for the boxer briefs we needed at this time it was just Naomi and myself and we had a contractor Julie who was doing the design and, and the production uh, but, but and the sourcing of the materials because we didn't know anything about that. But that we weren't getting paid. You know, it was it was a very uh, lean operation and just keeping things afloat. I was doing the product photography. Naomi was doing the back end on the website. I mean, it was, and and we still had jobs. We we still had to you know keep our keep our lights on. So when we just we were prepared for another we had this big long meeting and we were going to do another kickstarter to help pay for the boxer briefs and then decided wait a minute we don't need a kickstarter we've got a big following let's just pre-sell them and hope that by the time they arrive we can have the money to pay for them and so we announced the pre-sale two weeks prior to the first shipment arrival and sold out before they got there so that was our indication that we had taken the right path and that we should continue on that path. So now we don't sell. We may have a few things. We have some hats and whatnot that we don't make. But the the 98% of what you see on the website now is stuff that we manufacture and produce. And in fact, we introduced our first signature print in uh just a few months ago and so we have a lot of new prints out there that we're designing which is really exciting that you can wake up one morning and say oh my gosh i would love to see octopus Mm. on underwear and Mm -hmm. before you know it they're octopus on underwear and they're super cute (laughs) so um yeah so that's that's Kind
0: of how we got here. Gotcha. So when you are, uh, you know, today obviously you said that you manufacture and produce pretty much everything, uh, all of your entire catalog yourself. Uh, but when you're when you were first starting out, or maybe when you're when listeners are listening in that they're starting out and they're trying to figure out this mix of manufacturing themselves versus uh, what you're calling curating. Uh, how do you how do you I guess think through that process? How do you decide what you should be manufacturing yourself versus what you should be curating or, or you know buying a uh, white label? and and, uh, branding it yourself
1: well i think that there are you kind of have to pick a lane you have to pick a lane and choose which what direction you're going to go so if you uh, you, traditionally if you're manufacturing and creating your own stuff you you can either sell it via e-commerce or you can go wholesale those are two very different business models and they're so different that to try and do them both together is near impossible it's it's really hard because they, it just requires a whole different back end and the way that you operate. So that that's one piece of it. but the other piece is really just uh, kind of what's your vision and what is it that you want to to what is it that you're doing There are a lot of companies that you know, that there's the one-stop shop where you can go and find, a lot of things that you love, but it, they might be bringing in uh, brands from a lot of different company or a lot of different brands and just picking the stuff that works for a certain look. Um, and so there are a lot of companies that are, are going that route and then they end up making their own. For example, um, Nasty Gal did that, ModCloth did that, and then they started, after they'd been in business for several years, although Nasty Gal has declared bankruptcy, but <laughs> their path had been pretty, uh, pretty significant, success story up until the last couple of years. And they waited until they had been around for a while were very firmly established before they started creating their own product because it just takes so much capital and you have to pay for goods up to three to six months in advance. And so very capital intensive. So it's a very different thing. And in our case, I mean, that the cash flow situation is, has been a continual challenge because for example, we introduce bras and they sell out in, in, in you know ten days and they're sold out and then you've got to make more, and it's just this constant uh, running after the inventory and keeping it in stock and so that's been our, our biggest challenge of all is is uh, keeping inventory in stock and having the cash to pay for it in advance.
0: Mm-hmm. And so while you're making this transition from uh, you know a mix of creating your own products versus curating it. Uh, how do you how how did you prepare? How do how would you recommend others prepare when they're making this transition? Because like you're saying, a lot of times it's a lot less risky. Uh, you know, worse margins, but less risky when you're just uh, curating or private labeling uh, products that you find. But the margins aren't as good, and you don't have as much control over the the entire production process. So there's pros and cons, obviously. But a lot of times, people will make this transition from curating to to manufacturing producing it themselves uh what kind of tips do you have to offer what kind of uh, i guess pitfalls do you, do you want people to make sure they look out for when you make this transition from from again uh curating to manufacturing on your own
1: surrounding yourself with people that know what they're doing if you don't know what you're doing if you do know what you're doing mm-hmm. um then it's typically it's it's the same thing that you'll always run into where you know product isn't or fabric isn't delivered or it's flawed or you're going to run into unforeseen circumstances. So my uh, practice is to try and take care of or or foresee the, un, the what we can expect and try and be ready for those things so that when the unexpected happens, you have the bandwidth to react to that. Uh, and I think that especially if you're – First, going into manufacturing, you need to find some manufacturing partners who you trust that are willing to work with you, uh, that understand that you're a small uh, small fish in a big pond at first. And so finding people that understand that startup mentality, but that will be partners with you that want to grow with you. And so we were very fortunate in finding a, a, a factory owner up in Vancouver, Canada, which is a couple of hours drive from Seattle, that we could go up, meet with her, tell her our vision. She had worked in men's underwear before, so had a vast knowledge. She also had a, a good eye for marketing. And, you know, I, I think that the biggest thing that we do is listen. We listen well, and we ask a lot of questions. I'm, I'm known to... I. I'm known to ask a lot of questions. On, I say to people, look, I, I don't have any answers. I just have lots of questions. And so um, that's kind of how we listen and gather information and then make decisions based on that. And I think it also becomes about, you know, what is your brand? What does what your company represent? What are you trying to, to be to your customer? And that really kind of frames the business decisions that you make as well, because we recognize that, uh, there are a vast number of people, uh, around the world. We've shipped to 41 countries that need and want this product that we're, that we're making. And, but we want to be able to speak to them from an authentic place because it is who we are. And that, that has worked really well for us as, as well. So,
0: yeah. Mm. And what are some of these common bumps along the way? Like, like you're saying, some of these are unexpected, but I'm sure that after going through some iterations of of this, of producing your own products, you you probably run into some common holdups, common issues that, that you expect every single time. Are there? What, what are they? And, are, and what, what ways have you found to mitigate the, these kind of issues when again you're producing your own products?
1: Oh, one of my favorite stories is when we were expecting our our first. Uh, shipment that was coming via container and we were waiting for it and uh, we're excited that we you know would have improved margins because we had the the uh, time to actually ship it and then we heard that it was delayed because the iPhone 7 was shipping and Apple got priority containers and there were so many that were coming and so it, it, it became just this funny thing of wow, okay, we just got booted because of the iPhone Seven. So um, there was also a a port so, uh, strike the, here in Seattle, and that kept us from being able to make pajamas when, uh, two years ago, and our flannel was was stuck on a container and they couldn't get into the port. So those are unforeseen things. Uh, we have, for example, there's one factory that typically overpromises and underdelivers, so we now adjust for that. Okay, they. They say they're coming on the 7th, so we'll be ready for it on the 14th and see if that can give us the time that we need. So you just make it, – it's relationships, and that's so important, paying your bills on time so that people are ready, want to continue working with you, but also kind of knowing what the limitations are. Uh, we're facing an interesting dilemma right now in that as we're scaling – We're looking at our our business partners, uh, vendors that have been working with us and trying to determine if they have the capacity to scale with us or do we keep doing kind of smaller projects with them and then find larger factories that can scale with us because our growth is so incredible right now.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the, the really important things I'm sure you face this with Kickstarter too is that when there are these unforeseen problems they obviously will cause uh, one of the biggest issues that they cause delays in in the delivery of the products. So this means that not only do you have to be prepared for yourself but then you also have to kind of prepare your customers too. Right? You have to manage these expectations with your customers. Uh, what what ways have you found that that works well when when these issues come up where you know, an iPhone shipment delays your apparel shipments which is uh, it seems really unrelated, but then when you explain it, it, makes a lot of sense. How do you explain something like this to your customers?
1: That's a really great question because it's something that we faced early on because we got our customer very used to the idea of pre-sale. And we knew that we would hit a, hit a point where that was no longer going to fly. And I'd say that was probably a year, maybe a year and three months in, when it was not only causing problems from the customer facing point of view, but also internally um, being able to handle pre-orders and on top of the orders that are already coming in. So it it created some logistical issues where we finally had to say, okay, we're putting an end on the pre-order type of selling and we're just going to announce things as they arrive. Because our customer had grown weary of it, but up until that point, our customer's because they were there was such a pent up demand and they loved so much what they were doing they knew who we were what we were up to and it was a, a pretty small customer base compared to now but they they were very accepting and supportive and understanding and recognized i think partly because of things like kickstarter recognized that we needed the money up ahead of time in order to to keep producing it so that's a uh, it has been a journey that is we've transitioned from that piece. But again, it was because our customer was willing to do that. I I think that there are a lot of things that you could try and sell, pre sell, that people won't buy, but in our case because they've been waiting so long for a company to kind of address these these issues mm-hmm. that they were willing to
0: wait. Yeah, I guess if there were a lot of alternatives or a lot of competitors in the space, they're not going to wait, you know, many extra months because they could just go and go buy from a competitor instead. Uh, But like you're saying, because you are the only ones that are serving this particular audience, particular problem, they were willing to to take their time and wait for you because you're delivering something that doesn't exist yet. Uh, So you mentioned earlier that you couldn't continue going down this pre-selling route. Can you say more about this. Like, why did you feel like you couldn't continue just pre-selling the the products? Well,
1: our customers were wanting it now. Uh, that became more, much more of a they weren't as willing to pay for it, and mm-hmm. then so it caused a lot of customer service issues. Uh, when is it coming? People don't read a lot of <laughs> a lot of, yeah. uh, of, of people don't read, and so they wouldn't recognize. And as we we did this uh, uh, brand refresh in May of of this year. And we attracted a whole new segment of customer. You know, our customer base is really growing and we have this perception of being a much bigger company than we are and people don't really look into it. So they think that we're on par with, you know, the Amazon of the world. Why isn't my, my why isn't my underwear arrived? And so it, it created a lot of uh, customer service issues. But also on our logistics end, if you've got, you know, 500 pair of underwears that are uh, that are there that are coming in then you've got to be ready for that shipment to arrive but then you've got to get them out as fast as you can and that's in the midst of your regular shipments and we were also if there was a, a two-week delay and they ordered stuff that we do have in stock versus one item that's coming later then we would have to be split shipping and that was an expense that that boy just felt like we didn't need to incur as we were trying to cut expenses.
0: Mm, okay, so when you are going with uh, when you first started pre-selling your products, how do you communicate a I guess a pre-sale differently than a product that they can buy immediately? Do you have to build up the buzz for it? like what's the what's your launch? I guess approach to selling a product that doesn't exist yet.
1: We typically didn't introduce a product that didn't exist per se, but that was a few weeks out of arrival. So we would put in big red letters, pre-sale only, shipment, by. Once we had a delivery date, we would put a date that, that that's when it would ship. And so we tried to make it bold and red and say, hey, it's, it's not shipping. At the beginning, we would also follow up with an email to people that placed a pre-order and, and email and say, hey, I want to let you know the item you ordered is on pre-order. It won't be here for a couple of weeks. We didn't. We tried not to push it out beyond two, two weeks. Two weeks was kind of, well, maybe three weeks in some instances. For example, when we introduced our bra a few months ago, it's a it's a bralette, not a sports bra, but but uh, we introduced it. We did a, a sample run. We weren't sure how they were going to sell. We wanted to get them out there and start fitting them on on real customers and get feedback. And so we we did a an order placed an order offered them three weeks out pre sale. And they sold before they arrived. So they uh, we had a 100% sellout before they arrived in-house. And that was on a three-week pre-order. And that was one of the last items that we've done like that. But because, it, again, it was a pent-up demand, they we have a trusting customer. They know that they're going to get quality product that fits them well. They're going to have a, an attentive customer service experience that's speaking to them. And they can support a brand that that really represents their values and it, it's who they are, and so they're more willing to. Oh, look, they're introducing a bra. We'll wait three weeks, and yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and pre-order it. So I, I we have some new products that are coming out that we will probably do a similar thing with, just to kind of gauge the the uh, appetite, to make sure that that then we are able to take that information. Okay, these sold out in ten days we need to order more and and in fact we had to call our factory and have them stop making some underwear and get back on bras because they became such a big hit so we kind of weigh those things before we go out we're not going to introduce for example if we have a new print coming we're not going to introduce that in pre-sale anymore we did initially but it it doesn't fit, fill the same fulfill the same purpose for us because we we know that prints are going to sell well we know that people are excited and so it's the new stuff that we can kind of pre-sell, and that, that way the customer that's been with us from the beginning recognizes what we're doing. They're excited about it, and they want to get it before it sells out because that, that was a, one of our bigger problems in the beginning was um, selling out too quickly and having uh, broken sizes in our, in our uh, product assortment.
0: So, what happens when you have a hundred percent sellout in a pre-order? Do you recommend taking orders for more than you have in that initial shipment?
1: Well, yeah. If, if it depends on how much we've got coming in, so we don't want our customer to be disappointed. So mm-hmm. we may put a limit on it if we know we've got enough coming in by a certain date. But if we know we can't get it for three months, we're not gonna we're not gonna let them over over purchase. Um, so we put a limit on it based on what's coming in because it's, it's a terrible customer experience. I mean, sure. I've made calls to people personally to say, I am so sorry, but we sold out. And it's, 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 uh, we're, we're trying not to do that as, as we grow and mature.
0: Mm-hmm. So speaking of uh, capacity, you mentioned earlier that you're at the stage where you are scaling up the business rapidly and you want to make sure that these vendors and these manufacturers that you're partnering with can keep up with it and can uh, match the, the the demand that you're bringing. Uh, how do you determine this? How do you determine if a vendor or a manufacturer can scale with you?
1: That, that's a very good point and something that we've had numerous conversations I've uh, mentioned Julie Nomi, who is our head of product development and um, merchandising or sourcing. And she has over 30 years of experience. So she understands the relationships and that piece of it, but also is able – it's really about who the people are behind the, the, the company that you're working with. So if you've got someone that you feel like is is very professional and – knows how to scale their their prompt. they've they've got the capacity to expand. Then you know that that's a good partner, but you may have someone that's more of a mom and pop shop, and they they're great for doing samples for you or helping you get the fit right. But they're not really set up. That's not really what they want to be. They don't want to be a much bigger than that. They like their particular niche of of that piece of it. so it's 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 basically figuring out what people are capable of and then what they're willing to do. For example, we so the way that we operate we perfect our product up in Canada in Vancouver and um, we work with two factories up there both of them are women owned and we they're extremely important critical partners and our partnership means a, a tremendous amount to all of us then as we scale and we start we realize we've got a, a hit on, another hit on our hands okay well we need to make triple the amount then we work with factories in China that these companies, that these women work with. So they have pre-existing relationships. We've gone to China. We've met with the owners. They're all um, medium to small size companies. They're, we've we've uh, met their workers. We've been, you know, uh, through the factory. We make sure that the practices in terms of the how they treat people, but also the chemicals that they use. We use only certified um the, the, there's a certain type of certification to make sure that no uh, harmful chemicals were used on our product. So that type of thing where we're we're actually going in and making sure that they have the capacity. But there's this one particular um, company over in, in China that is growing with us. And so, for example, we were having a slowdown because there's a certain type of stitching on, on some of our product that's very important to the wear and the fit. And they only had one machine. So they recognized that they, that was slowing them down, which was slowing our delivery down. So they went out and bought two more machines. So that tells us right there, okay, we've got a, we've got a partner that wants to continue working with us, that, that wants this to be a long-term thing. They're making investment in, in machinery to accommodate us. So that's a that that's a that's a good partner for us. That's somebody that we want to keep working with.
0: Mm. And one thing you mentioned in the pre-interview questions was that the uh, one of the key things you want all entrepreneurs to, to learn or to, to to recognize is that you just stay focused and relentless, but don't miss the opportunity to change course. And I'm assuming this kind of goes in, in line with your idea of having the cash to make these investments. Can you give us some examples of, I guess, this happening for you? Was it the discovery of uh, the, 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 the box of briefs, uh, the underwear being the key, uh, I guess, driver for your business?
1: Yes, I think that pivoting from this curated and look and making our own shirts that was about how you looked on the outside and pivoting into underwear was a very important move for us and we struggled with it for some time for a few months and then finally said let's make the transition let's focus in on what we're doing uh that that was a hard decision but we haven't looked back it was the right decision absolutely Now, in a few years, can we get back to those cool shirts? Maybe. We hope so. We had zero returns on them. So uh, we we know we we created something that 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 there's a demand for, but we've tapped into something that there's a much bigger demand for. And a lot of people wear underwear. So Mm -hmm. that was a good business decision for us. And, again, in keeping with the brand and who we want to be, uh, that you know, we have something for, you know, we're not for everyone, but we are for anyone mentality. And so we've, we've been getting a lot more uh, customer male customers. We have a lot of trans customers. We want to be that brand that is, that is inclusive, that's welcoming, that is about being who you are. We, we want to celebrate the cool factor in individuals. We don't want to tell people how to be cool. We really do appreciate and value how cool they already are.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. Uh, so, so I think one of the other potential issues with uh, having a lot of success. Is that there are just too many opportunities for you to pursue, right? Too many potential places you can invest your dollars, invest your time, and like you're saying, over the the years, you've essentially kind of groomed your catalog, right? You you took things out, you uh, changed the focus on onto underwear, you removed those shirts, like you mentioned. What was that process like? You know, because like you're saying, there were no returns on these products. Obviously, people loved them. You you were selling them. But and they're I'm I'm assuming they were profitable, but you decided to cut them out anyway to focus exclusively more on the underwear. What was that process like?
1: Oh, it was it was basically looking at the numbers. Uh, We were fortunate to be uh, accepted into uh, an accelerator program based in Boulder called Merge Lane, and it was really during that time when we were forced to really look hard at the business at what was working, what wasn't working, and what the opportunity was. And so I, I think that that's the real, the real turning point is being able to recognize the, the idea of what you want versus the idea of what's working. And looking at that opportunity, it, it's a different category, you know, loungewear, underwear is a very different category than shirts. It's not easy to do both at the same time, especially for a startup because you've got to start somewhere. I remember talking with um, one of the founders of Tommy Bahama, and he said, you know, our entire company was built on a zip-up hoodie, or not hoodie, zip-up sweatshirt. That that was how they built their entire company, because they found the one thing that was resonating, and they pumped all of their energy into getting that out there, and then that, in turn, fueled their growth. And so that was how we looked at it it just became a numbers game looking at what's working and and what makes the most sense um people have an average of 30 pairs of underwear in their in their drawer so that was a, an opportunity for a lot of repeat customers there was a lot less de- design time development time it just seemed like the right thing and the fact that no one was making boxer briefs for women and now that we've expanded into everyone, that was just a, a much bigger market. and and again, it was it's recognizing the opportunity. Uh, another thing that that especially startup businesses and, and companies struggle with is is recognizing, especially in fashion, that you can't expect to be profitable for three to five years. And so that's how long it takes to get ahead of the curve to so where you're actually able to, make enough money monthly to pay for your, your operating expenses, but, and you have a, a margin that's healthy enough to sustain your business elsewhere. So we're, we're not, we're basically have been making underwear for two years. So we're hoping, uh, you know, that, that our, our finances will continue to along the trajectory that they have. And we can continue to grow the company, but recognizing that we, aren't going to be profitable when when, when a company is starting up and they say, okay, I'm not going to be profitable for three to five years, then you're looking at that and uh, knowing that there are going to be a lot of decisions that you make that are going to uh, affect the growth of your business. We've been fortunate in that we have a lot of, all of our employees and contractors really believe in what we're doing and understand business and startup environment. And so they've come on at a reduced rate. We have people that uh, we have exceptional terms now with all of our vendors. We have we have, uh, you know, other outs outside kind of companies that are helping us. um, Everything from law firm to accounting, everyone that is part of this recognizes that the that the they're betting on the come, you know, they're betting on, on waiting to see where we get to. And so they're believing in us and every step of the way. And they recognize that that means dollars. And so, you know, we may get, okay, well, yeah, we'll pay you two weeks from now. And they're, okay, we'll give you, uh, you know, 14 day terms. And, and that's our agreement because they recognize this. Knowing that A few years down the road from now, we won't have that problem. We'll be able to just pay everybody, and you know, we'll be a a wildly successful, profitable company. But it takes time to get there.
0: Mm -hmm. And the the focus on underwear seems to to be the turning point that is leading you down this road of success. Can you give us an idea of how much, uh, I guess, success or growth came uh, after this this change or this focus on underwear?
1: Well, when we introduced underwear in September of 2014, so we tripled our revenue at that time in six months, and that uh, we also started the accelerator program and recognized that in order to seize the opportunity, we needed to open a fundraising round and raise the money to fuel our growth, uh, to get uh, infrastructure set up, to move our warehouse we're now moving we're moving our warehouse in two weeks for the fourth time since we started that's how fast we're growing as i mentioned we had 5x growth since january of this year uh so we we want to continue that that growth and knowing that underwear was the path for us just it just proved itself it just that's how it played out and knowing that we hear from a lot of customers about what else they want and need. And so that's what we're working on next. And some of the things do or don't make sense, but we, we have a captive customer audience that knows we're listening, that knows that, that these things that they've been wanting their entire lives. I mean, we get handwritten letters from, you know, seventy year old women that are saying, I've waited my entire life for mm. underwear that I feel that makes me feel comfortable in my own skin. And that's that's a big
0: deal for sure. That that's amazing that you you have customers such a wide range of customers, um, and you know speaking of, of fundraising, I want to touch a little bit on the Kickstarter campaign. the The goal for this campaign was seventy five thousand dollars, and you ended up raising a little bit over seventy six thousand dollars from six hundred and sixty five backers. So this came really close, right? Because I believe with Kickstarter, if you don't meet your meet your goal, you don't get any of the money and everything gets uh, essentially goes back to, to, to the backers. Was that, uh, I guess, a, a scary time when you're coming, edging right up to that goal right before the end date?
1: Gosh, I'm having a little post-traumatic stress <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, I lost 10 pounds and slept four hours a night. And it was intense, and yet you're absolutely correct. If we did not raise seventy five, we raised zero, and so it was down to the wire. We hit seventy five on the thirtieth day, and uh, we had been watching it. We'd learned so much, and I can't even—it's it, what we know now as opposed to what we know then. It's—it's it's just incredible what, what the three years have, what, how we've grown individually as a company and personally. So. The, we learned a few things. One, had we started with a, at least a Facebook page several months prior to launching our Kickstarter and gathering emails, that was a big, big miss for us. So we didn't have the following, the network that we could have had had we done a little bit of work before we launched. So we in fact launched our website, our Facebook page, our Twitter account, our Pinterest board, and our Kickstarter all on the same day. Um, So that was, that that was craziness. And then we basically had to, every day, come up with a new marketing ploy to get uh, out to our network. And then our network would reach out to people. And that, that was when we started recognizing that what was resonating was, was bigger than the shirts. And so, um, that was about the brand. So that was interesting in that people were buying a lot of our lower price items with just our logo on it, but there were, we did almost sell out of our shirts as uh, the, the button up shirts that we made. But it was really the lesson that we, we knew it was palpable. It was this, this fervor. We knew we had a brand, but we didn't, that's not what we had set out to be. And so we, we knew we had to just kind of get through the Kickstarter, raise the money, get that stuff into production, regroup about what we were going to do now that we had this instant brand.
0: Awesome. So amazing story. You know, Thanks again so much for your time, Fran. TomboyX.com, again, is the website. Where else can the, the listeners uh, follow along with uh, what you and uh, I guess your business are up to?
1: Well, we've got a, an awesome uh, Instagram following. It's style. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at F Dunaway or uh, our Tomboy Exchange is the Twitter handle. And we've got a lot of uh, really exciting stuff coming in January. Watch for uh, not only new designs and new product, but we've got an incredible video um, with a with a celebrity that we're coming out with. Um, we're very excited that will be kind of our um, anthem film we we hope to get into a lot more video stuff uh we will remain online we'll remain an e-commerce play for now because uh as you know it's all about margins yeah we we love hearing from people so feel free to uh check us out online and info at tomboyx.com if you've got any ideas or suggestions um we are as i've mentioned earlier we are great listeners and and we want to hear from people
0: Great. Thank you so much for your time, Fran. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.